Welcome, and thanks for listening to Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. We have Lisa Broderick with us today. In just a moment, she's going to be with us and tell us all about the book that she has written. I'm very, very curious and fascinated by this topic. Remember that you can email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're always looking for interesting guests and folks who are doing good work out there. In just a moment, we will be back with Lisa Broderick. This is Heartstock. As I went walking at ribbon the highway, I saw This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. Today, our guest is Lisa Broderick, and she's the author of All the Time in the World. Hi, Lisa. Carol, thank you so much for having me. You know, when I first saw your title, I'm like, wow, I need that book a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all want all need and want all the time in the world? It really does resonate. Yes, indeed. And then when I kind of delved in a little deeper, I'm like, oh, yes, this is good. This is good. So <laughs> can you give, Lisa, our listeners a little introduction here as to what is your book, All the Time in the World, about? All right. Thank you so much. All the time in the world, it's a fascination I've had my entire life. What is time? How does time work? Have you ever had those weird experiences where time doesn't pass as normal? Sometimes it's greatly slowed down or you're doing something and it it seems like a moment has passed and an hour has passed. I started having these as a little girl after a, 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 a an accident, I guess I I will say that I'll share with you in a moment. And I wanted to know why they happened. And I spent a lifetime of study. And I combined science and spirituality into an approach which allows people to understand time so they can lead better lives. I think that's what it's really about, leading lives of fulfillment and purpose. And that's why I wrote All the Time in the World. Indeedy. And, you know, there's really not too many entrepreneurs and uh, fellow business folks out there that have have told me, oh, I have all the time in the world. In fact, the opposite (laughs) is true. They tell me I need more time. (laughs) So before we really get into the nuts and bolts here, I know that I kind of took a little sneak peek And I know that you had a near-death experience as a child, which is also, to me, a very, very fascinating topic. And I've read all kinds of books about this. (laughs) So um, there again, I don't know why, you know, why why are some of us so fascinated with these topics? But can you tell us a little bit about how that led to all that you're doing now? I will. And so at the time, I was living in Arizona with my family. My parents were New Yorkers, and they had moved to Arizona for a new industry in the 60s called the computer industry. Imagine, right? Way back then. Yeah. And we were vacationing near the Grand Canyon. I was I was four, and my little sister was three. We were in a cabin in something called the White Mountains. And being as little girls do, we were jumping on the bed in the cabin. My mother was sitting to the side. My father and brother were off somewhere. And I didn't know, but the bed was on casters. And so I hit the edge of the bed and flew through the air through a plate glass window where I was impaled. Now, we were near the Grand Canyon, and this was years ago. 
So there was really not much that anybody could do about it. And um, I was taken off the glass and put in the station wagon and hurried to a nearby doctor's office, which was not really a hospital facility. But the curious thing is at the time, I remember everything. I was aware, and my, my memory of it is aware, that I was, I'm aware of what it was like on the window. I could draw the cabin to this day. I could draw, I, I understood the time it took to get there, and which was impossible because I had already, if not was close to, bled out at the scene. And in fact, a doctor later told my mother, I don't think she's going to make it, which I only learned a couple of years ago. So, uh, but I did. I, I, I remember the, the operating room where I was sewn up in an amazing, you know, miracle or, or wonderful technical expertise by a local country doctor. And then I was a little girl again and full of life, but I was different. Now, I will say something about memories. Memories are a funny thing. They grow and change, and memories are informed by current experience going back into the past, and they they mutate. With that said, this same memory has been with me for 60 years, nearly. So I think that this actually happened, and of course, my family confirmed that the whole thing, the episode, did happen. But remembering being out of body, remembering the facility and being awake and aware are something I remember. And then afterwards... I discovered as a little girl that I had what I'll call a superpower. And the superpower was I could control time. I had experiences of slowed down time, which athletes describe as the zone or the flow state. And I'd be on a field, in a soccer field, and suddenly the field would slow down. And of course, when you're a little girl, that's pretty scary. I used to have nightmares, actually, about slowed down time, about swimming through time like it was heavy water. But then I learned to control it, and I really wanted to understand it. And I started to play around a little bit, like arriving for an appointment, you know, on time, even though I had left way too late in order to be on time, these types of things. And then really funny episodes like bowling at the age of eight, where I couldn't get out of the zone no matter what I did. And I bowled nearly a perfect game, and I was a terrible bowler. (laughs) So all of these things added up. They added up into my fascination with, in particular, time. And then I became a meditator in my 20s, and then then things really started to click. Because meditation is timeless. You are in that state that you can put in. I, I practice Indian mantra meditation through transcendental meditation. But there are many, many forms. Of course, Buddhism and mindfulness and all kinds of things, Kabbalah. So I was performing Indian mantra meditation and realized there was a connection. There was a timelessness. There's linear time, and then there's another kind of time, which I would call the now. And it struck me that miracles and genius and all kinds of things live in a particular place in time. And if we could control that, and we could get to the bottom of that, we could really live wonderful lives. And that is, again, why I wrote the book. Mm. So I'm just really interested in hearing more about how this amazing experience, a little scary, I'm sure, especially for your Poor mother. Um, oh, I know. We never spoke about it as a family, really, she, until at the, the very end of her life. She must have been mortified. <laughs> More truly mortified. Yeah. And as she recalls, she saw me fly through the air in slow motion. Hmm. So, how has this early, early experience uh, directed your life and your choices? What kind of educational choices did you make and and why did you study what you did or did you just kind of forgo all of that? 
Well, you know, so this was Arizona in the 60s, and, you know, you didn't really talk about things like that. Yoga was not something that was really around way back then. And so I kept it pretty much to myself. I became aware that it might be a little unusual or different. You know, my brothers and sisters, they, they knew a little bit about it, but I was a pretty private person. Later on, as I became a meditator, I started to share more. But I practiced it, and he was really the funny part, and that is my mother was an economist. And so economists study science and the behavior of humans and then use it to understand why they did that or predict what they'll do in the future. So I, too, followed in her footsteps, and at Stanford University, I studied economics, which was the science of why things happen, right, people. And then I applied it to this because, as Churchill famously said of his uh, rival way, way back, you know, if some people stumble over the truth now and then, but they pick themselves up and dust themselves off and go on like nothing happened. <laughs> I oh didn't gosh, do that. I love that. <laughs> when, when I would experience slow downtime, I would make a note of it. I kept journals. I have shelves and shelves of journals of stories and all of these things that happened to me. And I began to put two and two together. And then when I was in high school, I was given the book, The Tao of Physics, Fritjof Capra, which really opened things up because that was Eastern meditation and physics, quantum physics in particular, and my mind just expanded. So that I followed economics in Stanford. I was business-minded, and my family had since then moved to Silicon Valley. So I had my heart set on working with small technology companies, which I did for 35 years. But in all that, I was still at my little practice of studying time, and eventually I began to share it. And they say when the teacher is ready, the students appear, and that's what started to happen. People would ask me, how did, how did you do that? How did you, how do you remain so calm? What, what is it about that, that caused this, these things to happen? And I started to put them together and I was encouraged to write them down as I have. And it became a book which is full of funny stories and, you know, science that supports it all because I'm very scientifically minded. You can't just say that you know how to control time. Let's discuss how that might actually happen. Let's discuss if time travel is possible. So all of the science is there and the stories and then the practical applications. Okay, let's, you know, let's put a stake in the ground. How do you actually do this for yourself? And that's what the book became. So what kind of things do you think you have been able to accomplish that may never have happened had you not had these experiences in this this superpower? Yeah, I'm sure some of them are in the, uh, a lot, most of them are in the book, but can you just give us a little flavor here? Of course. Well, time, there, as I discussed, of course, everyone knows there's linear time. The clock is moving and you have, you may not, you feel like you don't have enough time to do all the things you want to do. And I, through meditation and through a wonderful spiritual teacher of mine for 20 years in New York, Dr. Gerald Epstein, we used imagery in order to do a variety of things. And I applied it to slowing down time. So literally, if I have a, right now I do a lot of nonprofit work for my uh, nonprofit Police to Peace, which is in police reform. And I may have to work on a huge grant, which seems impossible that it could be done by five o'clock. But beforehand, I've done some preparation. I've done the work, the exercises in the book to see it done already, to sort of use the combination of my own mind and the power of our minds is vast. We use 10% of our brains. What about the other 90%? So using the power of our minds, which are vast, using imagery and visualization, focusing our perception, that's a term I use in the book. How do we put this all together in order to direct our energy to do what we want to have happen? 
and then focus it at, for example, the big grant being done, where I live an experience ahead of time of whatever I want, I see it as already done. And there's sort of magic to that, Carol, because it's, you know, when we're afraid of something, it sort of rings like the clearest bell to the universe. You know, this person is afraid and then all kinds of things happen. But when we approach something that we're, we might have been a little unsure about, but we've already done exercises to see it done, everything changes about us, number one, how we show up changes. But there may be something more to it. There may be quantum mechanics, which I do believe exists in our everyday world. Of course it does. It's in telephones and computers and lasers and radar and everything we use, right? But we don't really see the quantum field in our everyday life, we think. I think that one day science will discover that a lot of the experiences we have are actually explainable in that, within that framework. And there's a way to practice it through the practices in the book, which draw on quantum mechanics and quantum physics to allow us to speed up and slow down time mm. so that we can lead lives of purpose and meaning. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, uh, you know, one person that comes to my mind immediately, George Washington Carver, I mean, that's a whole nother conversation. But these kind of mystics, I guess, you know, he has been called a mystic. And then, mm-hmm. you know, your own personal experiences, maybe, uh, as you've said, these are just unexplained um, scientific events that um, seem mystical and strange and maybe otherworldly, but really they're just part of our natural physical world. Well, they, in some sense they are. Para, let's talk about paranormal experiences, which we call them. Okay, so people have these strange experiences which can't be explained. Through the lens of time and the framework of time, we could actually explain paranormal experiences through, for instance, what's called phase. Phase in time is where imagine someone who dies is six seconds behind us or ahead of us, wherever we are in linear time. Would we see them? No. We might see them out of the corner of our eye. And in fact, I have an exercise I do called the two flutes, where I explain how all of these things that we think of as unusual and mystical are explainable through through the lens of time. And when we have a better understanding of time, they will be knowable to us. Yes. And, you know, it just seems like we have more and more uh, folks that are kind of tapping into this as we evolve as a species and very, very useful. You know, I really would like to talk more about this and your work in the realm of police reform. But we're going to take our little midway point break here. And in just a moment, we will be back with Lisa Broderick. This is Heartstock. Welcome back. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. And today our guest is Lisa Broderick. And she's got a lot of irons in the fire, but we've just been talking about her book all the time in the world. And um, tell us a little bit, Lisa, about uh, some of your other endeavors. And I would imagine that there's kind of some interconnectedness here somewhere. Yes, of course there is. And so when I was thinking about time, of course, for all of these decades, 
I started to wonder, why is it that anyone, or I in particular, cared what time it was anyway? (laughs) It's an interesting question. Why does anybody care what time it is? And an answer came to me, and that is, we want to know what it is that's ours to do now. If you didn't have something to do now, you wouldn't care what time it was. So that's interesting. Yes. Now, we can take that to another level, a sort of metaphysical level for our lives, and ask the question, what is it that's mine to do? You know, we each have sort of a gift and a a calling and all of that. And to ask that question, eventually we'll get answers. They may not come right away. But for me, I've been a high technology CEO for over 30 years, and I was working with small companies. It was very fulfilling. But around the age of 50, I started to change. And actually, I ran across a quote from the Dalai Lama attributed to him in 2014, which was, the world will be changed by women over 50. Mm-hmm. And so there's reasons for that, right? And mm-hmm. so education and access to resources and children are grown and we are the weavers of society. We reweave things, right? Mm-hmm. We bring people together, all kinds of reasons. And I started to think, wow, what is it that's mine to do? And I had an experience and the experience was I was working with a company in Florida and I was on a beach one day and I had a sort of, I would call it a mystical vision. I, a police vehicle came on a beach They drove onto the beach on a summer's day, and I saw the words peace officer on the side of the vehicle. And I thought, wow, that's notable. It wasn't, quote, there, but it was there for me in this vision. And I called a friend of mine who was a constitutional lawyer, and he said these words, which changed my life forever, and that is, I don't know why they all don't do that. They're all peace officers anyway. Now, this was years ago before many of what we're experiencing today happened, but it struck me. I was a high technology trained executive, you know, professional. Disruptive technologies are what change societies. Introducing peace, peace officer into a community or a nation changes the nation. It changes policing. And so that's what Police to Peace does today. It's national grassroots police reform in the words peace officer for every police department and sheriff's department. And we're doing wonderful work and uniting uh, police departments and communities together all over the nation. How does this compare to, um, you know, the the mantra (laughs) that we've all heard of defund the police? To many of us, those words are just not acceptable, a little bit scary. So how do we introduce peace into policing? <laughs> Hence our name. Well, that is a, a wonderful question. You know, defund the police is a, you know, it's a catchy phrase. No one I know, both on the community side and on the policing side, and we work, the nonprofit works in some very, very violence-torn communities, really wants no police. That's just not the case. Some may do. I've never met one. Instead, what people want is good policing. What is good policing? It's empathetic, effective, and just. And that's what we are for. We bring those principles. We reintroduce and help police departments reaffirm those. And, you know, in public safety, bad things happen. People's lives are at stake. It is really very important that we get many things right and terrible tragedies occur. But we can introduce peace into these communities through the disruptive technology of Peace Officer, and we're doing it today. Do you anticipate writing a a book? I mean, this topic is just, we'd all love you to write a book about this topic. (laughs) There are, there are so many, I call them police leaders, you know, sheriffs and police chiefs, some are retired, some are currently serving with a heart for social justice. Their hearts are breaking. This is awful. 
communities at odds with the police. They didn't want that. Virtually no one wants that. Of course, in any profession, there are people who are, you know, some some may have a different view. With that said, the, the preponderance of the 800,000 police officers and police leaders, they join because they want to be part of goodness. They support goodness and peace and peaceful communities. And I'm hoping to help elevate that with my work through the book and also my work through Police to Peace. So the first thing that comes to mind here, um, Ferguson Rises, a friend of mine is a documentary maker. And when, you know, just right as Black Lives Matter movement was happening, they're on the ground in Ferguson filming. And one of the things that was striking about what he learned through that experience is two completely different experiences that folks were having in the community based upon their race. How do we how do we bring peace to this kind of racial difference and disparity? Is that something that's part of your work? It is part of the work. It's at the heart of the work, and that is equity, treating equally. You know, a law is not a law if it doesn't treat everyone fairly and equally. And this is equal justice under the law. When that's not true, then something's broken. And so things to fix are accountability and transparency, right? Mm -hmm. There hasn't been a lot of that. Most departments differ with that. We do need to understand something, and that is understanding what policing is in America it's different than any other nation on earth. There are 18,000, get that, 18,000 different police departments and sheriff's departments. In Britain, there's one or two. So they could have sweeping national police reform. America can't do that. Those police departments are run by 18,000 individuals who are elected or appointed in 18,000 communities with mayors who have their own rules. And their counties have their own laws and their states have their own laws. So really getting, an, in, you know, the national vision, the national insight behind how we move towards apparency, transparency and accountability is something that's happening now. I don't believe the genie is ever going back in the bottle. I think we're going to approach a new way of community uh, safety, we'll call it, you know, rather than public safety or policing, community safety, which is co-produced with the police. Can we change all of them at once? I wish I could wave the magic wand on my desk and do that. And I actually keep a magic, a magic wand on my desk just for that. But in the absence of that, we're going to work with them to try to capture imaginations, move things, get to a tipping point, right? So that the equity, the equal application of law under America is what is the norm. And it is the norm. What we do, we see terrible things happen. No one can deny that. Can undercurrents and different things be changed? Yes. I do say, though, that with so many police officers and police agencies, changing policing is like changing the direction of an aircraft carrier. How do you do that? Very slowly and very carefully. It doesn't change all at once, but it is changing. Yeah. I'd like to change back to the direction of, of being an author. And any advice that you may have for amazing people out there that have amazing stories to tell how where does one start and what was your path like are you self-published yeah just all kinds of questions around you know publishing and writing books 
It is a wonderful question. It was really never a dream of mine, but it was always something that I did. I'm sort of the accidental author in that regard. And here's why. So years ago, friends of mine and I decided, you know, we, but one of us might want to write a book. And I applied my business, you know, team building mind to that. And I got a buddy. And so a writing buddy is a really, really important thing. Each of you may be working on something else, something different, but you're helping each other. And then there's a schedule like homework. So a dear, dear friend of mine was the first female cellist in the New York Philharmonic. And she was writing a book years ago. And she um, she asked me about writing the book. And I applied this writing buddy theory, you know, approach to her with her book where I was her buddy. And the buddy is someone you speak to on a weekly basis. It is like homework. It's the same time every you know week, unless someone has to change it, same day, same time, where you report in and you talk about things and you bounce things off of one another. I wasn't writing a book at the time, but she was. And that became a book, which was published. And then when I became the, I started this process, I started to do the same thing, where I would employ, I would engage volunteers, friends around me to be my writing buddy. And one thing led to another, and one of those writing buddies said, you know what, I know a literary agent. You should show this to. And I thought to myself, well, you know, this was years ago. I didn't really know anything about that world. Well, they did, and that became a lit- the literary agent that I work with, which is Folio Literary Management in New York City. So that was awesome, right, just through these connections. But I really think it was the joint in- intention, the shared intention, continuing to work on it. It sounds a little trite, but the journey rather than the destination was how I approached it. Because one thing led to another, and then pretty soon the book was finished, and there was an agent who'd appear, just like when the teacher is ready, the students appear. It appeared and it was magical. Well, I will say, though, that I applied, the exercises in the book existed before this book, so that I applied the seeing it done to all of that. Mm. And I have a bit of a mystical late night life. So between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning, I do the exercises in my own book where I live my life in advance. I imagine things as done. I reverse things that I would not like to experience. I do many of the exercises. And then I wake up in the day, you know, in the morning, in the daytime, and I've pretty much forgotten what I did the night before. But I don't think the universe has forgotten or the, you know, the higher self of myself, the big I, let's say, who might be looking down or God or spirit or whatever you would call it. There's something to all of this. And I use that in order for this book to come to its wonderful crescendo where it is right now. How long did it take you to write the book? Just about five years. Mm. So it was a, again, it was a destination. I never thought this would happen. Hmm. Fascinating. <laughs> it truly was a journey. We, we have about, oh, a couple minutes left. And just wondering if you have any other words of wisdom or, and advice and how folks might find you, Lisa. Oh, yes, of course. You know, the, the wonder of it all, right? The wonder of science, the amazing complexity of the universe. We all understand how uncertain times are right now. With that said, there's a beauty in all kinds of things that happen. And I just believe if we can, if we change the part of our lives that we can control our perception, then we can move toward lives, which are a fulfillment, meaning, and purpose, even in the midst of great chaos. That would be my hope for everyone. And so online, I'm in all the usual social media uh, handles, Lisa Broderick, 
And the book is All the Time in the World. If you search under any of those words, All the Time in the World or Lisa Broderick, on any of the major social media and on our, and in Google for our website, uh, you'll find it at lisabroderick.com. And how about your uh, bringing peace to policing work? Oh, yes. So online as well. It's a, it's a unique name, which I used to get a little teasing about, but now people are getting it more and more. It's the word police, the number two, and the word peace, mm-hmm. police2peace.org. And if you Google that, you'll find a tremendous amount of information the communities we're working with and our hope for grassroots national police reform that's organic, where every community co-produces policing with their police agency, their police department, in order to have a world that we all live in. We lead our best possible lives. Thank you so much. I know... um These are some crazy times, and I'm just so thankful for every guest that carves out time uh, to to share their story. And I just love yours. Thank you so much, Lisa. Carol, thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. And as usual, we shall see you next week. Peace. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. Thank you, Remy.